You guys may or may not know, we are really blessed in this church to have a number of folks who have a vision because of the gospel, because of their relationship with Jesus Christ, their reconciliation. They have a vision for talking to others about that same possibility in their life. And that's really what Run Free is about. It's not specifically a Christian ministry, but it's Christians who are using running as the vehicle to talk to kids who don't know Christ. And we are solidly behind it. Really appreciate Keith and Matt being involved in that. We have folks investing in services all over Topeka. And it's something that we believe in as a church. I hope you'll, if you have any interest at all, whether you're a runner or you just want to help financially support the gifts, you know, through donations, the stuff that they're providing to the kids, it's a good thing. So it's just another way of Christians trying to be involved in sharing Christ with others and doing so, in this case, with kids, most of whom haven't heard the gospel before or haven't seen it at least lived out. So to the message this morning, we're talking about mission statements. And, you know, as you talk about mission statement, I expect that eyes start to droop immediately. Mission statement, kind of a business term, uh, sounds boring. Thank you, ladies, for that affirmation. Uh, sounds like a boring term, but really is an important concept. A, a mission statement's defined as a way of communicating the purpose of an organization. This sounds very dry, I know, on the front end. Just stick with me for a little bit. But really, a mission statement helps other people know who you are and what you're about. It's this concise description of your organization's purpose for existence. What do you do? Why do you do it? That's mission statement. We're going to talk about Lion Lamb's mission statement this morning in a little bit. We used to do this annually. We haven't done it in a while. But I want to frame this up before we get there so that perhaps it, it takes on a little bit more meaning than it might otherwise. I've got some examples. I'm going to start with a few examples of business statements regarding their mission statement. And the first one is this, to make a contribution to the world by making tools for the mind that advance humankind. Now, I love this statement, to make a contribution to the world. This is a person with a vision as big as the world itself, by making tools for the mind, they're going to tap into our ability to be creative, that advance humankind, affect the world and everybody in it. Do you know whose mission statement this was? Does anybody here know whose mission statement this was? Let's see if I can get this thing going. Maybe, maybe not. Let's try this. I may be going to the hand signals here, guys. Let me try again. Let's try. Hopefully. Maybe not. Thank you. Steve Jobs and Apple Computer. Do, do you think that aptly describes Steve Jobs and Apple Computer? I sure do. How many Mac users here? Uh, wow. We're a, he, he didn't affect all the world, did he? A small, small, small part of it. But I think that's apt. I think that was a great description for Steve Jobs personally and for Apple Computers. Let me read you a couple more. How about this one? To unlock the potential of nature to improve the quality of life. To unlock the potential of nature to improve the quality of life. That's Archer Daniels Midland's mission statement. They're probably the biggest agribusiness in the world. But that really speaks to what they do. They genetically engineer stuff so that it grows better, faster, more of it, etc. That's really concise and helpful. How about this one? And I, I can't speak to this one, never been in a store that I'm aware of, 
will be the easiest pharmacy retailer for customers to use. That's CVS Pharmacies, Walgreens competitors. They say we're going to be the easiest place for folks to come in and get their prescriptions filled. And I really like this last one because it taps into the emotion. A mission statement could be really dry, but the best ones will engage the emotions in some sense because you're really getting, why do we exist? What are we doing and why is it meaningful? So listen to this one. We fulfill dreams through the experience of motorcycling by providing to motorcyclists and to the general public an expanding line of motorcycle and branded products and services in selected market segments. You know who that is? Harley Davidson. You see, they're not selling motorcycles, they're selling dreams. And when they say selected market segments, they're saying our products aren't cheap. And we're good with that. And to motorcycle riders and non-riders because of all their branded stuff. Harley Davidson says we're selling dreams. And you know, if you talk to motorcyclists, the Harley still remains. It's the, it's the tip of the top. If I'm going to have a motorcycle one day, it's got to be a Harley Davidson. But you get the picture. A mission statement is really a, a window on the world of why that group, that agency, that business, or that church, why it exists. Forbes magazine says a mission statement should answer what do we do, how do we do it, who do we do it for, and what value do we bring. Every mission statement won't hit these four points, but most of them will touch on at least three of them. Your study sheet, by the way, has a place on the bottom back side to think about your own personal mission statement. Guys, this is really helpful. And ours would be different. Yours and mine, as Christians, they would be different. If you said, uh, as a Christian, my mission is to love God and love others, that'd be fine. But if you said, no, but for you, what does that look like? What does that require for you? What's God's mission statement for you? It'll look a little different for all of us, probably. But think about that as we're talking through this this morning and come up with your own. It's wonderfully clarifying. And it's not as easy as you think. Go through some versions probably before you get the one that fits. So towards going to Lion and Lamb's mission statement, what I want to do first is I want to hopscotch through some Scripture because I want to set the plate before we get to the statement. So we're just going to hop, skip, and jump through some key texts in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, because what I want you to see before we get there is that this church's mission statement is not new. It's, it's not sort of out of the blue. We didn't come along one day and say, this is what the church is about and this is how we're going to go about it. I hope that what you'll see is this, that our purpose and mission as a church is really to tap into what God's been doing all along. And so as we look at some of these key elements in the Old Testament and the New, I hope that you understand that all of that informs Lion and Lamb's mission statement. If you've been here for a long time, I hope you can also do this you can see how closely you think we do or do not match our mission statement. That's helpful. It's clarifying too. If you think we're way off, you let me know. Uh, it's been helpful for me just working through this again and thinking about where we're at as a church. And, and I think we're far closer to our aspirations today than we were even a year ago or two years ago or further back. So hop, skip, and jump. So Genesis... Creation of the heavens and the earth, right? God spoke and it was formed. And 
And there on earth, God makes this garden, Garden of Eden, this paradise in which Adam and Eve are set. And all the pleasures of the earth that could have been available, they were there for them. And not only do they have all the pleasures available, God put them for them, but they have the very fellowship of God walking with them in the cool of the day. They have face-to-face, if you will, fellowship with God Himself in the garden. And as you know, that doesn't last long. Because you get no sooner to Genesis chapter 3 and the serpent comes along. And he tempts Adam and Eve with knowledge, knowledge from the tree of good and evil, that God did not intend for them to have. And they fall. They sin. Do you remember what their first response was? When they hear God, what do they do? They run. And they hide. And why is that? Because suddenly they have this sense of shame. Guys, they didn't know what shame was until that moment. Because the Scripture says they were naked and they were unashamed. You see, they were everything God meant them to be and nothing that they weren't. But now they've sinned and they have this deep inner sense that I am not right. I'm broken from the inside out. And their remedy was to go and was to create some leaves, some clothing, some leaves that would cover them up. And guys, two things on this. One, the leaves didn't work very well. Physically, just the physical covering. But two, the leaves could never cover up what they needed most to be covered, their sense of brokenness, sin, and shame. They were going to need something more significant than leaves. And not just an exterior covering, but something that would cover their sin and shame from the inside out. And so when God confronts them in Genesis 3, when He speaks judgment to them, pain and frustration, thorns in the garden, He also gives this promise. He says that Eve, one of your children, the seed of the woman, one of Eve's descendants is going to come along and he's going to crush the lying serpent's head. He's going to put him to death. He's going to effectively do away with his power to harm anyone else. He himself will be harmed in the doing. His heel will be bruised. So from Genesis 3, from the third chapter of the Bible, we know something about man and our needs. We know that we're broken from the inside out. We know that all of us have this deep sense of shame and sin and that we need some way to cover it up. Now, in Genesis 3, it doesn't say that God slaughtered the lambs and the goats, but it's implied. Because God says to Adam and Eve, those leaves aren't very meaningful or helpful physically. We're going to do something better. And it says, the text says, God clothes them with skins, with hides from animals. God gave them an adequate covering physically, those animals whose lives were sacrificed to provide their skins, their coverings. And that was a reminder also that one day God would provide an adequate covering for their sin and shame. The promise, the seed of the woman, but also those first animal sacrifices to provide the skins to cover Adam and Eve's physical nakedness. From Genesis 3 on, you know something that man needs an animal sacrifice to cover their sin and shame. Man needs a lamb. Go along, skip ahead a little bit to Genesis 12. And as I said, this will be skips, jumps, and bounds as we go through this. Genesis 12, you meet the father of the faith, the faithful, right? Father Abraham. God calls Abram from Ur. He's a pagan like everybody else. And says, hey, I want you to go up through the Fertile Crescent. Come down to the land I'll show you. You're my man. And Abraham believes God. And you see that obedience acted out because he does what God says to do. 
And when he gets to the land of promise, one of the descriptions of Abraham's time there is this. He built altars and he called on the name of the Lord. What you see in Abraham is both a man of faith and a man who was committed to worshiping. He worshiped at the altars and he called on the name of Yahweh. Now, not only was he faithful in that sense, but when God finally gave him a son, the son he'd been waiting for all his life at 100 years old, 99 to 100 years old, Isaac, Isaac grows up. He's a strapping young adolescent or young man. And God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love. I want you to take him up to this mountain that I'll show you. And there you're to slay him as a sacrifice to me. It's a gripping account. Abraham takes Isaac up to the mountain and is ready to slay him. That, that most awful act of worship and obedience you could conceive. And of course, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And God says to Abraham, stop, don't do that. Take this ram instead. And guys, right there again, you see this, this image, not only of Abraham, the faithful worshiper, the believer who worships, but you see another picture where God said, I'm going to provide myself for the ram, that, that offering. And Isaac becomes a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see in this image too. Isaac carries the wood for the offering on his back up the hill. By the way, it's the same geography, just about where Jesus was crucified. Same general area at least. So Isaac's a picture, but so is the ram caught in a thicket. God is committed. You see, a second time, God's committed to providing a covering adequate for our sin and shame. Now, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, when he's about ready to die in Genesis 49, he speaks to his 12 sons. And to each one, he says something about them and about the future of their tribe and their descendants. And of the tribe of Judah, he says this, he said, Judah will have a descendant who will be like a lion. He will have the power of a lion. He will destroy his enemies. And the rod of royalty, the rod of reign and kingship will rest with Judah. Judah's descendant will be like a lion. Guys, by the time the book of Genesis ends, we know two things. God says that he's going to provide a lion and a lamb. He's going to provide a lamb for our sin and our shame, and he's going to pro provide a lion to rule the world. That's before you get out of the first book of the Bible. Well, Abraham's descendants, as you know, go down to Egypt, and they're there for 400 years. And they multiply, and they become a nation there. And God comes down through Moses and through ten magnificent acts of power, demonstration that God's the real God, he leads them out of the land of Egypt to Mount Sinai where he enters into a covenant with them. And the thought was this, I'm your God, you'll be my people. You're going to walk out this faithful obedience, this life of worship, this authentic response to my mercy and grace through this covenant. But there was one problem, wasn't there? The covenant wasn't even ratified before Israel was breaking it. And that whole scene that you see in, in uh, Exodus, Exodus 32, when Moses comes down and realizes, while God's giving me the covenant, Israel is already breaking it. And that sets up this cycle that you see throughout the rest of the Old Testament. When you read the rest of the Old Testament, you see some high points. You see periods of reformation and renewal and repentance. But what you generally see is faithlessness followed by God's mercy and grace. It was always up to God to be at work with this covenant people or nothing was going to get done throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Now, when you get to the new, when the Gospels open up,
we see the seed of the woman arrive, don't we? God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, comes down through the Virgin Mary, born onto this earth, as God said He would be. And He's Abraham's son, as He had to be. He's Judah's son, as He had to be. He's the seed of the woman, as He had to be. And He comes down to take on our sin and our shame in His sacrificial role, His atoning role on the cross. When John the Baptist, his relative, saw Him in John 1, verse 29, He knew who he was and he knew why he was there. Because he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And suddenly that promise from Genesis 3.15 is realized that's Jesus, that's who he is, and that's the role he's come to fulfill. And as the Lamb of God, Jesus willingly suffers rejection, torture, death by crucifixion, so that his righteous offering would provide a covering adequate for your sins and mine. Having died for the sins of the world, the Lamb of God rose from the dead as He said He would. The seed of the woman had overcome Satan, sin, and death for us as God said He would. And He promised to send His Spirit to those who would walk as Abraham walked, those who would simply believe God, take God at His word. And He did. And you see that in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, The Spirit descends in tongues of fire on those first believers. And God's dwelling place is no longer in that temple on Mount Zion, but now it's in the hearts of those believers. It's not in a structure that you walk into. The people become the church of the living God, the structure God inhabits, as it were. And empowered by a new life and the Holy Spirit, the church begins its mission of bearing witness to Jesus. Acts 1.8, you will be my martyrs, you will be my witnesses, and making disciples over all the earth, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, uh, all all power, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and so you go and you make disciples and you baptize, and you command those disciples to obey all my commands, and you see the church starting that, Matthew 28, right on through Acts. When you read the Apostle Paul, Paul tells us something else too, Paul says, that the distinction that had separated mankind through the years, even though we all came from one blood, we came from Adam and Eve initially, we came from Noah and his wife after that, yet mankind was fractured and broken up in different groups all over the world, primarily in their day between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul now says in Ephesians 3 that not only the, the wall that was the law that separated Jews from Gentiles has been broken down in Christ, but that from whatever race or tribe or kindred, whatever your past, whatever your human background was, in Christ, men are now brought into one new family of faith, one fellowship, one new man. All those barriers between mankind, whatever groups we'd come from, all broken down in Christ. One new family, one new faith, one new fellowship. When you get to 1 Timothy, especially chapter 5, you see that God says that as those in His household were to treat each other as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith. That we're of the same family now. When you get to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2, Peter weighs in and tells us that as believers in Jesus, we are now priests. We're a royal priesthood. And God means for us to declare His excellencies. We're called like Abraham to be worshipers. As the New Testament winds down, if you look at Revelation 5 and 19, you see the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's the one that's overcome in Revelation 5, and he's the one that's riding a white horse 
leading the armies of heaven down to earth to reclaim his throne, his land, and his people. So, God's eternal purposes laid out from Genesis to Revelation are still being worked out today. And the wild and the crazy thing is that you and I get to be a part of them today. God's purposes, his eternal plan is still going on. And you and I find ourselves right in the midst of it. We are carrying on today the mission God's been working at all along through the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus. We're inviting others into a life-saving relationship with God into lives of faith, worship, and significance in God's own family, all based on an adequate covering for our own sense of sin and shame. C.S. Lewis said this, you've never met a mere mortal And by that he meant that if you could see the full-blown horror of the sinfulness of a person, or if you could see the final fruition of the glory of a Christian, it would be beyond your imagination. But friends, we could say the same thing today, that you've never met a mere Christian. Every Christian, every person who's been born again through faith in Jesus is a miracle and is part of this sovereign gracious, merciful work of God that he was talking about to our first forebears back in Genesis 3. There's no mere Christians. And there's no mere church. Every church that's calling on the name of the Lord is doing so along God's providential line, his caring through the centuries to make sure that there's a testimony to who he is and what he intends to do for us in Christ. There's no mere Christian and there's no mere church. We have this spiritual union. We're called to worship. So in light of God's eternal purposes and Jesus' death and resurrection and the Spirit's presence and the truth of God's Word, we want to be intentional, we, speaking of the church, about our call and our mission as a local expression of the church of the living God, the household of faith, the people of God, the new covenant priesthood, and the bride of Christ. So that's our backdrop. So we're not creating anything new. Lion and Lamb Church is not creating anything new and no other church is either. We all find ourselves in the stream of God's grace and sovereign role through the universe, through time and through history. God's at work to bring about His purposes and that's where we find ourselves. So with that, Lion and Lamb's mission statement, and hopefully you think this rings true both to the biblical record and to this church as it stands today. So this is the church's mission statement. Lion and Lamb Church is a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all his commands. Lion and Lamb Church is a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all his commands. We're going to take this phrase by phrase in about 12 minutes, not long, but you see if this is the church that you're a part of or, or maybe the church you want to become a part of. Lion and Lamb Church. I can't tell you how many times I've had to say uh, it's not the Lion and the Lamb, it's Lion and Lamb. It's not L-I-N-E, it's L-I-O-N. It's not the farmyard or the barn, barnyard, it's biblical imagery of Christ. Uh, we've had two queries to the Lion and Lamb website in the last month to say, where did you get your church name? Is that out of Isaiah? Both people ask, is that about Isaiah? Well, no, it's out of John 1, 29 and Revelation 5, 5. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. He's conquered. But 
the, the name of the church goes, friends, to our, our key identity. The, the thing is, we want to make much of Christ. We understand that knowing Jesus, that is the thing. And so our name reflects that tie to the person and the work of Jesus. The Lamb of God, Jesus fully covers our sin and shame. And that's something people need to know. You know, as a Christian, I hope that we don't suffer with some sense that we're still inadequate before God because we are justified before a God who knows everything we've ever done and everything we ever will do. And in Christ, the sufficiency of his atoning sacrifice is so full that our sin and shame is absolutely covered by Christ. With John the Baptist, we intend as a church to point others to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is a big deal. Friends, if we were starving and someone fed us, wouldn't we want to tell others where you can get food? If you were naked and needed someone to clothe you, wouldn't it be a good idea to tell someone else where they can get their clothing too? And that's what we want to do. We follow Jesus as the Lamb of God also by intentional humility and a giving of ourselves to serve God and each other as the normal path of life. If you talk about a Christian as proud, you're talking about something that should not be able to exist. Christians follow the suffering servant. Jesus is the model of humility. A proud Christian is a contradiction in terms. We, we try to intentionally put on humility in the way we interact with God and with each other because we understand that's what it means to follow the Lamb of God. We also follow Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah. You know, and I hope one of the things that's true for all of us is we're waiting for Jesus to return. You know, if you read Paul or you read John, uh, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Christians are meant to live this life with this expectation that at any moment I could hear God call my name in death or Jesus return to the earth to call his church to himself. That we live with the expectancy that the line from the tribe of Judah is coming back and we're going to be there. We're going to be with him. We follow Jesus as the line of Judah, friends, when we call people to obey the gospel. The gospel is not just an invitation to life. The gospel is a command. Romans 1.5 talks about the obedience of faith. Paul said in Acts 17, God commands all men everywhere to repent. The gospel is a command as well as an invitation. And we represent Jesus as the line of Judah in compelling people to believe the gospel. If you're here this morning and you're not sure your sins are forgiven, if you still have that sense that I'm not what I should be. Now, we all... We'll get to this in a minute. None of us are what we should be yet. But do I know my sins are forgiven? Do I know that if I died today or this moment, I would stand justified in the sight of God as my Father? Do I know that absolutely? And if I don't, I can. Jesus promises, the one who comes to me, I will not cast out. You come to Christ and you just say, Lamb of God, I want you to cover my sin and shame. And he will. That's the biggest thing. Nothing else in life matters. That's the only thing that matters is knowing Jesus as the Lamb of God first. But our name reflects the centrality of the person and work of the Lord Jesus. So Lion and Lamb Church is a... Sorry, let me get caught up here. Is a fellowship. You know, with the early church, we're committed to fellowship as a way of life. And by fellowship, we mean interactive. I know you and you know me. Now, even in a small church our size, you won't know everyone, and that's not what we mean. But you'll know some well and some will know you well and they'll know you well enough and you'll know them well enough to fulfill the one another passages over 50 of them in the new testament to love to serve one another 
to treat others as more important than yourself. You can't do that if you're not in relationships that are close and personal and transparent. You know, it's possible to come as a stranger into a church on Sunday morning and sit next to strangers and smile at strangers, sing the songs of Zion with strangers. It's possible for you to enjoy communion around the Lord's Supper with strangers. It's possible for you to leave a church having done all those things as a stranger. And that's a shame because that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to fellowship, to intimate, personal, transparent relationships with each other. And we try to be very intentional about that as a church as well. So Lion Lamb Church is a fellowship of worshiping believers. We want to be like Abraham. Our call is to walk through life as worshipers. Where Abraham built altars, we gather around the table of the Lord. Where Abraham slew lambs and goats, we remember Jesus in his death and resurrection. And friends, <clears throat> worship has two primary elements. I'll talk about the, the first one more fully in a minute. But <clears throat> worship first means obedience or obeisance. The term generally means to bow before someone else. When we worship, we, we understand that someone else is our superior and we bow before them as an act of obedience. The first, the primary call to obedience to God is that, that attitude of heart. It can or, or doesn't have to be with the posture of the body that we are bowing before God. He is God and I'm not. God owns me. I'm not my own. He has the right to rule my life. The second thing, which is typically what we think of, is to declare his worship. It's to declare his excellencies. A lot of us disobey God all week and then come and sing songs about him on Sunday. Again, that's a contradiction in terms. That's not worship. That's not a life of worship. We mean to be intentional worshipers of God. We aim to give God, as an act of worship, the first and best of our time, energy, finances, and everything that follows because God owns us. We're His. John 4.23 says God is looking for worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And our aim is to be in that happy company. I hope yours is too. So, Lamb Church is a fellowship of worshiping believers. This is a little slow. Committed to authentically. Authenticity, it means genuine. This for us means non-hypocritical. Religious people condemned Jesus to death. People who read their Bible committed Jesus to death and stoned Stephen. We don't want to be religious. Israel practiced an inauthentic version of relationship with God. We're not interested in a relationship of mere appearances. Friends, religious people are, in my view, they are the most miserable people on the face of the planet. Right. If, if you've if you've circumscribed yourself into a certain little narrow box of life, I don't do this, I don't do that. And somehow in my pride, my hypocrisy, what I get is that I keep these little rules. What a joke for a life. Right. Who would want that? We don't want to be religious. We don't want to be hypocritical. We want to be alive. We don't want to be churchy. We want to be like Christ. We aim to aspire nobly to our high call in Christ, remaining honest and transparent about our shortcomings and failures. And this means at least two things. Our shortcomings and failures are many. When you say authentic, one of the first things about that is we're not what we want to be. 
We're works in progress. We're not saying you've got to come up to this level before you're on our level. We're saying no, authenticity requires us to say we want to aspire nobly and we do, but we blow it and we miss it and we know that. And you want to say to others, it's safe to be yourself here. That authentic, we don't have to put on airs. We don't have to pretend that we're someone or something that we're not. We want to say no, we want to be real about who we are and where we're at. Uh, Paul says in Romans 12, to think of ourselves soberly. These things really are. That's what we want. Not hypocritical, not religious, authentic. And that authenticity is in pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Guys, anything that can qualitatively be called life is tied up in knowing Christ. Otherwise, we, we merely exist. Uh, this is one of my favorite things to talk about. It's life in Christ. L- listen to this. You, you know, when you hear the world and, and people in the world, uh, they're pursuing pleasure in the world. And I say, well, you're in the wrong direction. Or they say, I, I want a rich, overflowing life filled with joy, but I'm living it this way. And I say, well, you won't get joy that way. Listen to this from Psalm 16. David to God says, You make known to me the path of life. Do you want life? God puts you on the path to life. In your presence, where in God's presence, with God Himself, there is fullness of joy. Would you like a life that overflows with joy? It's to be had in God's presence. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Think about this for just a second. The world chases after pleasures All the pleasures ultimately are to be found in the person of Christ himself, in God. All the pleasures you and I legitimately or illegitimately enjoy, they were put there by God. The possibility was put there by God. God is the God of pleasures. And when we think about heaven forevermore, if heaven sounds boring to you, it's because we have no imagination and we still don't know what it's going to look like. It will be mind-blowing. At God's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. You want life? Life is to be had in Christ, and we get tastes of that now, but the fullness, we couldn't handle it yet in these bodies. Listen to this from Psalm 36. The children of men feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drinks from the river of your delights. Would you like a life filled with delights? It's at the river God provides us. For with you is the fountain of life. God is an overflowing fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Revelation 22, by the way. Paradise lost, right? In Genesis 3, what do you get in Revelation 21 and 22? Paradise restored. The river of life. The tree of life. If you want life, it's in Christ. And that's what we want to tell other people. We don't want to be churchy. We don't want to be hypocritical. We want to pursue Christ because in Christ we get life. Jesus is life. And the last is a catch-all. Obeying all his commands. That's one too many. Thanks. Obeying all his commands. Some churches in their mission statement will say, we want to do A or we want to do B. And I'm good with that. We just say, we want to do it all. So we focus on missions or evangelism or service or whatever. I say, yes, 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 yes. And we want to do it all. We want to obey Jesus' commands. That's Matthew 28. Guys, this is the thing too. Uh, Inauthentic Christians don't obey. Listen to what Jesus said. Just let this clarify our thinking. If you love me, you will obey what I command. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. What's well, pretty clear? If you love Jesus, you obey Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, you don't obey. 
Disobedient Christians, like proud Christians, are contradiction in terms. Now, we're saved by God's grace. God's grace alone. But what should our response to that should be should be this overwhelming sense of gratitude, thankfulness, that I want to live out of that. And obedience, guys, is the way to life. It's not the way to religious hypocrisy. Obedience is the way to life. When you and I obey, we get more life, not less. Evangelism, discipleship, loving brothers and sisters in the faith, loving the unsaved, Christian stewardship and service, these and others are all part of God's good commands and joined on His children. We say we want to be serious about knowing what the Bible says and doing what God commands us. Obeying Jesus doesn't lead to less life, but to more. So, Lion and Lamb Church. Now we'll get to that last one. You guys may be doing that for me. I don't. Yeah, thank you. Lion and Lamb Church is a fellowship of worshiping believers committed to authentically pursuing a vital relationship with Jesus Christ and obeying all his commands. If this mission statement describes the kind of church you believe God desires, we hope you'll pursue this mission with us. Lord Jesus, we ask that you glorify yourself through us. In your name, amen.